Hello and welcome to SETI Seminars, brought to you by the Oakley Literature Festival. This podcast series will introduce you to a wide range of topics as leading experts break down years of study into bite-sized talks. From 18th century murder mysteries to modern US history, and from psychiatry to post-colonial literature. The events of 2020 sparked a worldwide movement that has turned up the pressure on all areas of UK society to confront its colonial legacy. But what does decolonise mean in the context of university studies? Dr Alaric Hall and Dr Fosia Bora reflect on the meaning of this term for their respective areas of teaching in medieval studies and history. Hello everybody, welcome to SETI Seminars 2021. Um, my name is Fosia Bora uh, and I'm speaking to you from the University of Leeds. I have with me my colleague uh, Dr. Alric Hall and we are uh, going to talk to you for about 20-30 minutes about the question of what does it mean to decolonize medieval literature and history. This is an informal chat between ourselves. Um, we wanted to exchange with each other and share with you some of our experiences and what we've learned from doing decolonial work in our respective fields of teaching and research. So it's, as I said, an informal conversation uh, and we'll sort of you know, talk to each other, ask each other questions uh, with a view to, I hope, um, illuminating uh, some of the questions around what it means for universities to decolonise their curricula. Uh, so my colleague is uh, Alaric Hall, who is Associate Professor of Medieval English Literature, uh, and he works particularly on Icelandic languages and literatures. He's also the director of the Institute for Medieval Studies at the University of Leeds. So, hi, Alaric. Hey, ho. And uh, <laughs> yeah, thanks very much, Fosia, for having me uh, involved in this. Uh, I'm very excited. And the project of decolonising, um, you know, life at university, but also beyond, you know, how people much more widely think about the Middle Ages, uh, it's very, very appealing to me. Um, and I, I should explain to people who you are, to be fair. Um, so uh, Fosia, um, who started uh, this uh, session off, is a uh, associate professor of Islamic history at Leeds University, uh, like myself, um, and uh, she's the author of a, a book which we introduced at the uh, Ilkley Literature Festival a year or so ago called Writing History in the Medieval Islamic World. And I suppose, Fosia, it might help for us to think about both what it means to talk about decolonising and what it means to talk about medieval stuff or the middle ages i don't know if you would like to offer opinions on either of those words sure sure i think that's a very good place to start so there's been a huge amount of discussion around the word decolonial or its counterpart to decolonize as a verb and i think it means different things to different people and there's been disagreement about what it means um at the same time i think um and and i should also mention that it's been criticized as a term sometimes because um, it's been seen as a buzzword, a word which people use because it's sort of, you know, it, it's it's kind of avant-garde, it's kind of trendy to, to say you're decolonising. But to boil it down to its sort of brass tacks, what, what, what does it mean in practice? Uh, or what does the idea kind of refer to? To me, it's, the clue is in the title, to decolonise. So to colonise means to take over, to appropriate, to take the space of. 
And what we're trying to do is to um, look back on how knowledge is created and shared and how universities uh, and also school curricula present a particular view of what, how knowledge is formed and what counts as knowledge, what counts as research, what counts as reliable, accurate information that we can share with students. And the process by which knowledge is formed has, has been something we've taken for granted for you know centuries, I would say. And we're now in a movement where uh, knowledge formation and the processes involved uh, need to be examined more thoroughly with more nuance and with an understanding that uh, knowledge formation uh, in the university and elsewhere has been very Eurocentric. It's been um, led by an uh, assumption that knowledge is uh, uh, reliable knowledge is born uh, in Europe uh, and it, it proceeds through uh, methods that European scientists and thinkers and intellectuals have developed. So that's been questioned. Uh, at the moment and you know in the last few few years uh, and what that means medieval studies is something we'll go on to talk about but I, I suppose it's it's the act of co-creating knowledge in a new way with people who are not European of origin using non-European methodologies and it means I would say broadening the conversation around what counts as knowledge so that's in a nutshell what decolonizing means and it's more than um, putting more authors on a reading list. It's about thinking how we know and how do we share what we know and who do we include in conversations around knowledge and knowledge making. So that's how I understand it. Yeah, and I think that uh, that makes uh, sense to me. And I hope that for people listening as well, as we explore a few examples that will become a little bit more concrete. I suppose we should remind ourselves as well that colonisation doesn't just happen from Europe going outwards, though, it, you know, that, that has been the main kind of um, force of colonisation uh, in recent world history. But uh, even, for example, within um, India or um, uh, I'm just trying to think of uh, other places that where this might be relevant. For example, some parts of Africa as well, you've got indigenous cultures that are being colonised by post-colonial states. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, not be trying to get Europe off the hook by any means, but uh, we wouldn't want to be Eurocentric in our kind of assessment of uh, colonization and it's and it's this business of ways of thinking is very tricky isn't it because we're dealing with post-truth politics um, at the moment uh, conspiracy theories about uh, about coronavirus and so forth so we need to both recognize that there is such a thing as objective knowledge and to take that seriously you can't just make up any knowledge from from you know out, out of nothing while also recognizing that the European Academy has been too narrow in its assessments of what what knowledge is are valid um, and uh, not least in terms of privileging uh, Christianity and its kind of intellectual successes as being more important and more valid than other religions and their intellectual successes. So we need to kind of recognise objective uh, truth and the importance of uh, scientific research while also opening up our approaches to other ways of thinking. Right. Does that sound plausible to you? It does, it does. Although I think there's, 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 there, there is uh, some questioning occurring around the objectivity of knowledge, insofar as we are all individuals with histories, with agendas which we may or may not be aware of, and acknowledging our positionality, whether as a person you know, from a particular part of the world, 
speaking a particular set of languages, having had a particular kind of training, all of these things affect what we research, how we do it. So I think that positionality is something we can be explicit about and talk, I think, very, I, I would say, helpfully about how that affects what we do. Mm. Uh, and I think students respond well to that positionality. It makes them feel uh, they can then express their positionality more openly, more freely, and then it becomes a conversation in which there isn't the white elephant in the room. What, what role does your identity play? We accept that identity plays a, a role in how we further knowledge. Um, uh, I like your point about moving from the general to the particular. I think we do need to do that. I mean, in this particular moment when, you know, we have Black Lives Matter uh, in the news and I hope in our consciousness more than it has been, and then we have social justice movements um, around the curriculum itself and its connections with, with coloniality, the Why Is My Curriculum White movement, Roads Must Fall. And so in light of these movements outside of university spaces and within university spaces, I think the acknowledgement of, you know, black knowledge or, or black methodologies of research or, or Middle Eastern, native Middle Eastern ways of doing research are things that we're trying to bring into the conversation. And that's, I think, really, really important, not just for students of colour, but also for ourselves, you know, as academics and how we can broaden our own understanding of, of the world and the place of, 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 of intellectual endeavour within it. Um, so, yeah, yeah, it, it will be nice to talk about the particulars of what we do, you and I. Uh, we, we, we should do that, shouldn't we? Do we need to just say what the word medieval means to us? I suppose that's a, one way of positioning ourselves in this conversation. Yes, yeah, yeah. Do you, do um, you want to try that first? Yeah. <laughs> so for me, I work in the, on the medieval Islamic world and the word medieval isn't a very good fit, uh, really, because it's not um, a word that was coined for areas outside of Europe. I mean, you can question its validity within Europe, European spheres, and I'll leave you to do that because you're well versed in all of that. But from, for me, I use the word medieval for the Islamic world with great hesitation. Um, the Islamic world cannot be subjected to the, to the periodization that we use for Europe. It has its own uh, trajectory of history, but also of history making within academic spheres. And so words like late, early, medieval, modern, postmodern, etc., aren't a very good fit. At the same time, because it's such a diverse, a region of such diverse knowledges and self-understandings and so on, there isn't really an alternative that's very easy for people to grasp. So we're sort of stuck with this label medieval to distinguish from late antiquity and the modern era, you know, whether early modern or then modern. Um, so it's become a label that's persistent, it's sort of dogged, it's, it sticks around, and people find it helpful in some way. So it's one of those tricky terms that on the one hand, it distorts reality. On the other hand, it helps us to understand reality in a particular way. So for now, you know, I'm continuing to use it uh, with the qualifications I've mentioned. Yeah, yeah I, I really sympathise with that uh, with that assessment. I guess uh, if, in case anyone listening hasn't uh, picked this up, the Middle Ages are called the Middle Ages because they're in the middle between classical antiquity and then the supposed rebirth of classical antiquity in the Renaissance or the early modern period. Um, and I don't think uh, people in the Middle Ages thought that they were in the middle of anything. So it's clearly not a label that you know, would have made sense to them. And, uh, and it's an inherently patronising label um, because it's sort of saying that they're just sort of out of history almost, you know, out of the progression from antiquity to modernity. So it's a, a label that I really hate. But um, but I'm very interested in the fact that uh, 
often when you talk about the Middle Ages in Britain, at least people think you're talking about England or if not England, then Western Europe. Um, and I mean England specifically as well. Uh, we had a PhD student at Leeds uh, a few years ago, a guy called Paul Sturtevant, who did some good um, focus group work with students at Leeds talking about the terms medieval and middle ages and students would often sort of associate these words with uh, England specifically it turned out like not even Scotland or Wales and then if you push them a bit they'd be like oh well obviously yeah France was there too oh yeah Scotland must have been there too and then they'd be like oh yeah and there were the Crusades so I suppose I suppose you know Palestine must have been there as well um, but it's funny it's it although it's a word that should just mean a time in in history it becomes a word that's associated with a place and therefore gets very Eurocentric very quickly. Yeah. So I feel burdened with this term me medieval, but um, I kind of I definitely want to invite people to come and play in, in my Middle Ages without necessarily me imposing my Middle Ages on them. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so when you uh, introduce students to the idea of of decentering Europe, how, how do they respond? Um, I mean, it, it's a different conversation for me or that that. That question has a different response for me because my students are studying a non-European region, which is the Middle yeah. East and the Islamic world. But for you, I guess it's different because they are studying European languages and literatures. So how does that work um, in practical terms? Yeah, um, I'll be very interested to hear what your uh, experiences are, Fosia, in a moment. But um, uh, for me, I've got the, the huge challenge that I do want some of my students at least to encounter actual medieval languages. So um, Old English, the English that was spoken about a thousand years ago, is, you know, different enough from our English to be a foreign language. Um, and uh, and part of me does sort of think, well, if they're going to learn a foreign language, they don't have to learn English. But nonetheless, I teach on an English degree. People do A-levels that are called English literature, and so they want to come on to this degree. So I've got to kind of work with that somehow. Um, so it's very hard to get people up to speed with a new language while also saying, by the way, there's all this amazing literature in whatever mm -hmm. medieval Arabic in Persian um, mm -hmm. and uh, sort of getting outside Europe in that respect. Yeah. So some of the teaching I do has to kind of keep this deep focus on um, Northwest Europe, which is uh, you know where my my research traditionally has focused. Mm -hmm. um, but to try and help students see that part of the world partly as the periphery of Eurasia mm -hmm. and recognise yeah. that you know the islands that are often called the British Isles were not at the centre of the uh, the map at the time. Um, and we can do that partly by just looking at Welsh and, and Irish literature alongside English literature, which is, you know, scandalously often overlooked. Um, but also to uh, recognise that Christianity, which is really important, of course, in the European Middle Ages, is basically a Middle Eastern religion that's travelled and then being adapted to um, local circumstances out here in the West. Right. Um, and uh, not only a Middle Eastern religion, but one that actually comes with a whole package of Mediterranean culture that's not necessarily religious as such but medical learning and um, thoughts about the cosmos um, beyond just what's in the bible and I think um, I mean I, I guess I could sum this up by um, a story about when I was teaching the book of Genesis at one point um, and uh, one of my students said why do some of the characters have normal names and I was like well what do you mean and she was like well you know like some people are you know, called names that the student found uh, unfamiliar, um, Cain or Abel, I guess she doesn't know anyone called Cain and Abel, but mm. um, uh, she's like, but there's someone called Ruth and there's someone called Rachel. Um, <laughs> and, and I'm like, well, 
the reason why they look like normal names is that we have Hebrew names in English. It's not that weirdly English names wound up in in the Old Testament um, or the Hebrew Bible. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, just that kind of putting the uh, the Middle East back into Christianity is quite uh, quite an important process for me. Yeah, fascinating. From, from my side, I have to say we have a different problem, which is that religion is it's not so much that a particular religion is centred. It's rather that we have a kind of a, a secularism as the only acceptable lens through which to view a history that's deeply suffused with religion. Right. And what that means is that many religiously oriented sources are discounted as too subjective um, or too fanciful. Uh, and it also means that um, the, uh, the the narratives that you receive from people with religious perspectives are viewed on with suspicion, even where they're providing quite a lot of social detail, mm. detail about, for example, women or slaves or categories of people about whom we really need more information. Uh, so it's an interesting kind of conundrum. Uh, you see uh, sort of the centrality of Christianity, a kind of a Europeanized understanding of Christianity, whereas I see kind of uh, a really quite trenchant secularism that's quite hard to dislodge um, from academic studies of the medieval Islamic world. Um, at the same time, I think I do see some very good um, attempts to uh, kind of centre the narratives of, of the people, categories that people have talked about, um, for example, women or slaves or uh, people who are generally on the margins of society, religious minorities. But nevertheless, the kind of central religious tradition is not really examined in its own terms. And that persists as a problem. So if you're going to decolonize medieval Islamic studies, that would be a very good place to begin. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and students, students really, really appreciate that because most of our students, they may have nothing to do with uh, the religion in personal terms, but they are students of Arabic, many of them. So they want to learn the language and understand its sources on their own terms, mm. you know, without without being uncritical. They want to be critical examiners of, of these devotional, religiously oriented literatures, but they also want to engage with them as spiritual texts. And that we find quite challenging in the current climate, you know. So do you think um, you have more acute problems um, than I might dealing with students who are primarily working with medieval sources written by Christians. I ask in that there's a tendency perhaps in, um, well, uh, academic culture in Europe from the Enlightenment onwards to see Christianity as being kind of a, a step on the road to rational um, scientific thought. Mm-hmm. And, you know, infamously French laïcité kind of is a, uh, you know, uh, sec- French secularism is a system where it's kind of OK to wear a Christian cross because that's virtually secular, isn't it? But right. it's not OK to um, wear a headscarf or something like that as a, as a marker of um, Islamic identity. So, right. so do, you, do you think there is a double standard um, at work yes. here in students' minds or in the academy? I think um, in the academy, um, students are, you know, they're amazingly open minded, I find. That, that's been my experience. When you introduce ideas of of the academic bias of Eurocentrism, um, and in my case, Orientalism, you know, the, the mm. um, uh, very famous concept um, written about by Edward Said uh, in the late 70s and early 80s, where he spoke about the fact that the East or the Orient, he meant the Middle East, what we call the Middle East, um, has been kind of projected through a Eurocentric vision in which knowledge creation was bound up with colonialism as a political project. So when, when we introduce these concepts 
to students. They are immensely open-minded and they are very happy to work with this sort of very self-critical approach where we try to examine the biases within the academy. They, they really are very good and very agile with these ideas. Um, at the same time, at the level of research, you know, the, the kind of the, the, the leading names in the field, so to speak, you see a range of range of approaches. You'll see those who are really progressive, who want to be decolonial, who want to incorporate scholarship from the Middle East in Arabic or Persian or Aramaic or whatever other languages, uh, you know, dead and alive, you might find sources in. Um, dead and alive, sorry, that's that's problematic, but you know what I mean. Languages still spoken and languages no longer spoken. Um, and then you have those who have a very, very set way of doing things. This is research. These are the narrow confines of research. We only accept uh, research that's peer reviewed by other European scholars in European languages, in a European framework of rigor and originality and so on. Um, so, so you'll see a, a spectrum of different approaches uh, within kind of, let's say, the cutting edge of research. But there's certainly the dominance of very, very traditional Orientalism, where the Middle East and its resources are not viewed, um, I would say, in an unbiased way. Uh, now, we spoke earlier that bias is, is with us everywhere. We all have biases. You can't really uh, claim to be unbiased. But to be aware of your own biases, I think, is half of the battle, you know, to understand your own, um, you know, journey and yeah. your own aspirations and your own agenda, I think, is, is very important to acknowledge. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think we do have a, a, a double burden, but on the other hand, when it comes to students and their responses, it's refreshingly, you know, they're refreshingly open minded. And uh, I would say they write amazing um, essays and, 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 and papers on um, how uh, you can rethink these these sort of frameworks. You know, they, 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 they make it all worthwhile, I would say. The future is in good hands. <laughs> <laughs> as long as we can keep up this effort to keep decentering these Eurocentric ideas. Um, so we've been talking for about uh, 20 minutes already, so we should probably wrap up soon. Um, I don't know either if there's uh, anything that has been in your mind where you've been thinking, oh, we should we should get this in before we finish. Yeah, well, one thing we do work on um, uh, is maps and uh, students really appreciate that a map is a very good way to quickly encapsulate in one image a particular worldview. Mm. How are you seeing the world? And we question the traditional Mercator map that you'll see on a typical poster or a typical school textbook or a typical globe that you can buy in a shop anywhere. And we question that projection of the world. We, we think about alternatives. For example, uh, I mentioned before Orientalism in the Far East and the Near East. So East in relation to what? That's East in relation mm -hmm. to Europe. So those constructions are Eurocentric. And a map uh, is a very good visual illustration of this. So the, the Mercator projection has Europe at the centre, you know, and then everything else radiates outwards. <laughs> Uh, so we look at maps that are upside down, the Hobo Dyer projection, which is a decolonial map of sorts. All the um, right way up, is, depending on how you look at it. Absolutely. <laughs> we also look at medieval Middle Eastern maps, how they viewed the world, not because we think they're accurate, but more this is how they were looking at the world outside their own borders and yeah. how um, broad minded many of them were. And then we also look at maps that are more accurate, scientifically speaking, like the Hobo Dyer projection, which is more area accurate. In other words, you don't see Europe 
expanded in the middle of the map the way we see on the Mercator map. Rather, Europe is if you if you if you had an area accurate projection, Europe would be very tiny and Africa would be enormous. You know, so yeah. we use maps really as a as a kind of a way to jog our ideas about worldviews for history as well as the present day. So that's been very useful oh. for myself and my students. Yeah, yeah and that, that resonates with me. Uh, one of the classes that I teach involves students looking at um, maps of from fantasy fiction. Um, and I don't want to tar all fantasy fiction writers with the same brush, but uh, Tolkien's famous map of Middle Earth, for example, you know, it, it's very clear that the West is where all the cool stuff happens. The East is like where the map fades away and you get kind of suspicious brown people as Tolkien almost literally kind of portrays them, not completely without sympathy, but certainly in a very Orientalist way. Mm -hmm. and so you can, you know, really see that the fantasy representation of, of the medieval um, yeah, often kind of shows our biases back to us um, in, in a kind of magnified and very acute form. Yeah. And I always find it very striking, too, that, you know, we talk about the Middle Ages as being in the middle between the Roman Empire and the Renaissance. But if you look at a map of, uh, of the Roman Empire, North Africa's in it, a lot of what we now call the Middle East is in it. And traditionally, none of this gets taught as part of the Middle Ages, um, while lots of places that weren't mm. in the Roman Empire, like Ireland or Iceland, um, well, you know, the rest of Scandinavia, uh, uh, thought of very happily as belonging to the Middle Ages. And so it sort of makes you realise that actually the, the inheritance of Rome is not really what determines, um, mm. yeah, what we think the Middle Ages are. Uh, Eurocentrism determines what we think the Middle Ages are. That's, that's fascinating because it's suggesting that we have a kind of a, an epidermal bias. <laughs> I can call it that. In other words, pale-skinned people get put into the study of the Roman Empire, sure. but actual Roman subjects who might be Berber or who might be, you know, something else are left yeah. out. Well, that's pretty blatant, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, very, very much so. And we've got a lot of work to do to, yeah, bring students through the system who understand the world differently and who can teach it differently in the future. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Well, thanks so much, Alaric. I've really enjoyed Thank this you. conversation. Um, and there's more we could say, of course, uh, but we'll have to wait for another time. Uh, but I really hope the audience, the, the listeners have, have enjoyed it. Um, and um, if I may speak on behalf of both of us, if you if you have any questions, you know, feel free to drop us a line. Um, we're both online. If you Google our names, you can find them on uh, on Google, uh, our university addresses. And um, yeah, feel free to be in touch. But we, we, we hope to, you know, keep in touch with this series of SETI seminars. Uh, and um, yeah, all the best to you all. Take care. Thanks. Bye, Bye everybody. Bye. Thank you for joining this SETI seminar. We hope you've enjoyed listening. If you would like to learn more about this and other topics in the series, then reading lists are available in the episode description of your podcast app. Or you can check out our website, which is ilkleylitfest.org.uk. Until next time, don't forget to like, rate and subscribe. <laughs>